Well, it is a delight, certainly, to be here and to uh, stand behind this pulpit to address you from the scriptures. And we have a large task this morning. I'm trying to condense the the book, actually, that you mentioned into 45 minutes. And there are over 40,000 words uh, in the book, at least up to this point. So we'll see how we do. I want to begin with this question that I think is an important question because we want to make this idea of the church union, communion, and care. I want to talk to you about this this idea of the church as a culture of care. Now, when I say that, we could go off in a thousand directions relative to, to care and how we care and how we think about care or culture, what culture should be like in the church. But, but there's something that's distinct that I think has been missing maybe in the last 100, 150 years from the church that was a part of the nature the expression of the church in history past, and that is that the church was the primary place for which people would long for care. So I want to begin with this question and see if we can answer this question, is why is it that the church is often the last resort for care? I can remember, if we start with a story, I can remember being an associate pastor fresh out of seminary, 25 years old, completely clueless. It was quite scary, actually, how clueless as you look back. But the Lord was kind and gracious in serving this church, and I can remember just thinking quite often my responsibilities were to lead as an associate pastor of family life, so which meant discipleship basically from young to old, and in the process of leading was also to step up a counseling ministry. And one of the things I found very discontented uh, was the fact that a lot of people in the church would not look to the church for care. And I began to, to be curious about that. And often I would find myself in conversation with people asking them, why? Why did they struggle to come to the church first? What was the, what was the hindrance for them in wanting to come to the church as a place to seek care? And, and often I would hear things like, well, we know, Pastor, that you're busy. Um, and that you have lots of things to do, and we didn't want to burden you with this issue that we were struggling with. And what I found out over time is that was often, and I felt terrible about that because for them to perceive that that I was so busy that I couldn't care for them uh, was completely the opposite of what I was aiming toward consistently. And so as I continued to experience that and hear that very similar story, um, I would, I would continue to inquire. And I'm, I'm, if you get to know me, I'm sort of a bold, we'll just like hash things out. And I love to just throw things on the table and just see where we land. And so I started doing that with people. And basically come to find out is, is as people were struggling with certain issues or difficulties that, that they had in their life, um, it never really crossed their mind until I brought those issues up, that the church was the place that they could find help and hope and care for those particular issues. The further that I've gone in ministry, I consistently see that pattern happening, is that the church is often the last place that people look for care. I find that quite distressing, to be honest with you, because when I look back at history, the church, in its foundation, was responsible for all kinds of different functions and care for those who were broken, those who were hurting, those who were lost, but something has transitioned Radically, So I want us to try and answer that question. Now, we have to do this in a couple of different ways. I, as we've tr- been trying to do in the Sunday School series in Maryland, um, Pastor Aaron have done a great job in, in helping us to see 
we're going to root ourselves in doctrine and demonstrate how the care of the church is intended to flow out of particular doctrine that's critical. And we have to see the implication. If we believe the doctrines that I'm going to propose at the very beginning, then we have to see the implication by necessity that what flows naturally out is a church body, a people who care well. If we're not caring well, what does that also demonstrate that we truly believe about these doctrines? There begins to be a question as to whether or not we truly believe by practice the doctrines that we're describing. So, what I want us to do is to, to jump in, to, to begin to ask the, this question, why is the church often the last place that people look for care? You'll see 1 John 1, 1 through 3 on your outline there. That which was from the beginning, this is the Apostle John, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have, we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So our primary topic this morning is going to be care through what Jerry Bridges called spiritual fellowship or true community, biblical community. Let me just give a brief overview. We could go in a thousand directions here. We could talk about what is it culturally that has hindered the church so deeply that sort of blinded our hearts and minds to the fleshing out of biblical doctrine of what it means to truly be in union with Christ and then in communion with each other. There have been a thousand philosophies and Ideas that have impacted the church, we could certainly take that angle, and they are many. We have become such a therapeutic culture, particularly in the church, that we have longed for happiness more than holiness, and it's hindered the way that we care well for each other. I agree with Jerry Bridges when he says this, there is a crisis of caring in the church of Jesus Christ today. One of my primary goals in leading something like the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and teaching biblical counseling is not that every church have a biblical counseling ministry. That sounds maybe odd for an executive director of an organization to make such a claim is that the answer to this question is not that every church have a counseling ministry, okay? Because what makes a church caring is not the fact that they have some sort of professional model of ministry set up. I think it's a great idea. It's wonderful. But the way in which those types of ministries uh, are to happen are to be natural overflow of the health of the church itself. The way in which the church itself cares with and for one another. And then you have counseling, if you will. So how does that happen? Well, the, the normal process that we see in the scriptures is that the church is the place in which caring ought to happen. That God has ordained the church as the institution to accomplish this task. And he's given us the exact tools that we need, empowered by the Spirit, to accomplish this type of work within the church. So much so that Jesus describes the way in which people out there will know us is by the way in which we love one another. And so the way in which we love one another is supposed to be deeply impactful, even for those who are outside to say, that's what we need and want in our life. So, so much so that the normal processes of church life is to demonstrate absolute and adequate care. Now, there are certainly 
issues that arise. I would call them acute issues, difficult issues, that normal processes, it needs a little bit more intentional focus to accomplish this type of hope and help, which is where you get the idea of counseling ministry. And counseling ministry is just simply an intensive focus of one-on-one discipleship to help a person work through this issue as they conform to the image of Christ, and you help them to deal with the suffering of life in a way that's appropriate in honor to the Lord. So now let's begin. Let's begin with this first very important aspect of doctrine. We could go in again to all the problems that we see in the church, but, but this time I want us to focus just on how do we aim properly at fleshing out doctrine and practicing doctrine in such a way that we see the beauty of the care of the local church? The first thing that I mentioned here, and we have to like go extremely briefly through this. I'm, I'm actually assuming that you have heard this once or twice from Pastor Rick. If you haven't, then we can blame him, okay? Um, but the idea is that you are united to Christ. Those who are part of the body are united to Christ. Paul says this in Colossians 1.18, and he, talking about Christ, he's, he's giving this uh, full expression of who Jesus is in Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God, he says. And then he goes on to talk about the beauty of the preeminence of Christ. He continues that thought, and he says, and he is the head of the body. And this is an important thought, to the idea that um, even what Dr. Strand talked about several weeks ago, the idea that the authority in our culture is being destroyed in a thousand different directions. And listen, make no, make no mistake about it, that this idea of care, when we begin to look in different directions away from the head who is Christ, who is the chief shepherd, the one who cares for our souls, by the, ones who, by the way, the one who is foretold to be the one who would mend the brokenhearted. This was the task of Jesus. He's the one who's the head of the church. Now listen, if we start looking elsewhere, outside of Christ and his sufficiency for true care, Essentially what we're doing is we're denying him as head. We're denying him as having authority over those areas of our life that are deep-seated issues. And listen, I'm not denying the fact that we all have deep-seated issues. I think that's one mistake that we've made in the church is we think what it means to be a part of the church is perfectionism. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, even after you come to faith, read Romans chapter 6 and 7 and listen to Paul's wrestling of him with his own inner man that he does the things he doesn't want to do and doesn't do the things that he wants to do. He describes himself as living in this body of death. But but Paul describes that Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the, the body, meaning that all of us who are in union with Christ We are submitted to him. And how are we in union with Christ? There are several different ways in the scripture that we see that we are united with Christ. We're learning about some of those even in Ephesians chapter 1. We will continue to learn about those in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 specifically that we are in him. Believers are united with Jesus in the death, burial, and resurrection. Listen to Romans chapter 6 verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him In a resurrection like his, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And we think about this idea of of being united to Christ. This is a a one-time 
event that has long-lasting implications for us. That being united to Christ means that we are engrafted into him. We talk a lot today about identity and what it means to have a certain identity. We've even borrowed the notion from the secular world that, that we are responsible for creating or living up to some identity that's sort of outside of our control, as if it's some force that just drives us to be the types of people that we are. And we use all sorts of language to describe these types of things, when in reality, the Bible actually gives two specific ways that you can be identified. You are either identified in Christ or outside of Christ. And those, that identity has implication for who you are, how you live, the attitudes that you have, the behaviors that you have, the way that you speak. Everything that you do flows out of that identity. And how is that identity described? Is you being united to Christ. Galatians chapter 5 is probably the easiest place to see this um, in fullness. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the what? Desires of the flesh. And then he goes on to describe what it means that when you walk in the flesh, you produce the fruit of the flesh. When you walk in the Spirit, you produce the fruit of the Spirit. It flows out of your identity if you are in union with, with Christ. And so when we talk about union, think of it like this. I mean, we're homeschool people. We like Little House on the Prairie. You guys don't like Little House on the Prairie? What's wrong with you? You remember, right, the, the sawmill in town, in Walnut Grove. I should have done a trivia question to see if you could answer what the town was. You remember the, the, the water wheel? That was a part of that sawmill, do you remember that? Or sometimes you've been to different places and you see it as a part of some sort of uh, grinding apparatus that, that grinds the corn or the, the wheat or whatever to make flour. Think of your union with Christ as, as sort of similar if you think about it. Is you being engrafted into Christ is what drives the person that you are. That you are no longer your own but you now serve Christ, and you are intended, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5, to be an imitator of Christ. This is actually, don't miss this part, this is actually you being restored and repaired back to original design. Remember Genesis chapter 1? You were created in the image of God. Everything that was torn down in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the marring of the image... Christ now begins to repair. And how does he do that? By engrafting you into him, that you are now united with Christ. The way that God sees you is no longer in the state of your sin, but now he sees you in the righteousness of Christ. And you being engrafted into him is the power that turns the wheel that makes you the person that you are, that you live out of the identity of that person of Christ in you. This is the way in which Paul would pray for the churches. I pray that Christ is formed in you, he would say. Why is that so important? When you think about being in union with Christ, the more and more that you grow in Christ, there are several things that happen. Uh, number one, you begin to be conformed to the image of Christ, meaning that now what you display are not fruits of the flesh, which Paul described in 2 Corinthians 5, 15 and 16, that, that you walking according to your own way is under the power of your own self. You would display this evidences of the flesh. But now that you are united to Christ, you display the character 
of Christ. He washes you with the word so that you are conformed now to the image of Christ. And why is that so important? When you're conformed to the image of Christ, the way that you see people changes. You see, the way that you see people is not from a perspective of haughtiness or in comparison, uh, you against them, you being greater in our minds because we are so indulged with, with self-gratification. But now that the impact of Christ being formed in you is one of humility. Why? Because the person that you compare yourself most to now is not me versus someone else. Because the fact of the matter is, you can always find someone else that you think you are better than. Isn't that what the world tries to teach us to do? Think of modern psychology, for example. Modern psychology does all of these studies trying to compare you to hundreds and thousands of other individuals. Now, you see a replication of yourself to some degree, but really isn't that like walking into a circus fun house of mirrors where you see a semblance of who you are but not the exact representation of who you are? What's the way in which you truly see you? The way in which you truly see you, the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 25 and following, that you look long into the perfect law of liberty. And then what happens? You will see the type of person that you really are. Now, why does that matter? Because now you begin to see the depth of the love of Christ that needed to be bestowed upon you. Now you're beginning to see the fleshing out of what it means to be in union with Christ. And what does that lead to? The second point, that the church should be in communion with God. And how are we in communion with God? So this is the idea of a truth that God has given. He said that when you are justified, you are now united to Christ. And then this is a part of that truth, but a fleshing out of it in application is that you're to be walking in communion with God. This is the whole point, really, of Ephesians 1 through 3. I don't want to steal pastor's thunder coming up, but just think about me as the thunder that happens before the big storm, okay? Is Ephesians chapter 1 verse, uh, chapters 1 through 3 actually expresses this idea beautifully, describing who we are in Christ. And because of that, then he goes on and what's the very first part of chapter 4, 1 and following? He says, now, therefore, because of all that, I want you to walk worthy of a manner for which you've been called. Do you see the flow of it? It's because of these truths about you, because of the, the goodness of Christ and the depth of mercy and riches that's found in Christ, now walk in this way. This is the way in which we're empowered. So, listen, the, the way that the world approaches this idea of care is completely flawed. Why? Because it gives you steps and stages to try and empower you by your own ability to accomplish care for, for, for someone else. When in, the reality is, if we're depending upon our own power, we only three, see through our own selfish lens. And the way in which we care is not in self-sacrifice for the sake of another person. It is for the sake of reciprocation. We want to be known for it. That's the nature of who we are as sinful human beings. But when Christ grips us and we are in union with him, it radically now alters the way that I see you. Why? Because the way that I see myself in relation to the depth and love and the mercy and the riches of Christ now calls me to walk worthy of a manner for which I've been called. To do what? To lay my life down in love and mercy and grace for the sake of another. This radically alters the way that we think. So how does this 
how does this grow in us in communion with God? Now, what I want to propose to you is, is we, could, we could compare, could go into a history of psychology and how all of those secular ideas built a system of care that's so uh, apparent to us today, that's so common to us today, that the systems that were built within that secular history. But I want us to focus on the beauty of the church and what God has given. And so many people have said, well, uh, the, the Bible doesn't give some sort of textbook answer on what the church or, or, or uh, how the church should care for people. And what, the, what they mean by that is the, the Bible doesn't present a step and stage format the same way that your secular theories do. And so it's not sufficient to answer the modern questions. But I think we should flip that question because whose idea was it to care for people who are broken and destitute to begin with? All a part of the plan of the gospel of God was to give Jesus before the foundation of the world for people who were what? Broken and destitute. The ultimate demonstration of care. And this was his plan. And so should we measure the secular, uh, the, the, the theories that God gives in his word against the secular theories thinking them superior or should we do the opposite? I think we should begin with scripture and see the way in which he fleshes out the beauty of care. Because when you begin to see the shape of the church, what you begin to see unfold is God has given the church as the primary institution for caring for broken people. Let's take Jesus as shepherd. And if we were to take Jesus as the head of the church, yes, we all submit to him. And the beauty of that is that he is selflessly giving himself to us for the sake of us and the glory of God. But aside from that, when we see that we walk in communion with God, how does that happen? We see Jesus as shepherd. And he's foretold in this way from history past. Genesis chapter 3, we see this um, demonstration or this proclamation that there would be one who would come who would crush the head of Satan. We see that constant revelation unfolding throughout Scripture. We see the beauty in in a place like Jeremiah 6 and 8 and 9 or Ezekiel 34. We see this picture of the shepherds of Israel and how they were failing at caring for the people. In fact, what they were doing was they were feeding on the people, not feeding the people with the word of God. What would sustain them, okay? And notice there's something that's happening here. I want to give you as much as we possibly can in the time that we have. I'm probably more akin to Pastor Aaron. It's just something about the Johnson genes, I suppose, that I hope we don't go long today. So, uh, 15, right? We stop at 15? Yeah, ish. Okay. So what you see in the scripture is that there are two wisdoms that are proposed. Two wisdoms, okay? You see from the very beginning, God gives his wisdom. He says, this is what's good and this is evil. This is good. This is evil. This is good. This is evil. Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning, we're introduced to an alternate wisdom. And notice how that question is first phrased. It's actually the same way that it's asked today. Did God really what? Say. How is the question formed today? Same. Does the Bible really talk about those types of issues? Did God really say something true about that type of issue? It's the same way that we see it proposed today. And then an alternate wisdom is is offered. Notice that in the scriptures, what you see is when the wisdom of God is followed, it always leads in one direction, to life and restoration and beauty. When you see the wisdom of the world or the earthly wisdom uh, um, followed after, what do you see as the result of that? Death 
and destruction, heartache, turmoil, strife, and difficulty. What we see is the beauty of the church in Jesus being the head and shepherd that God has appointed him to lead his people. Now, listen to Jesus being shepherd. All that the shepherds could not do in Israel in history past, one of the most amazing passages is in Ezekiel 34, 1 through 4, where, where God is indicting the shepherds of Israel, saying all the things that they were supposed to do as shepherds that they're not doing. And then in Ezekiel 34, 16 and following, he says, but I myself will be the shepherd, and I will do all of these things. I will seek the lost and um, find the strayed, and I will Men, the brokenhearted, he says. And Jesus fulfills that message in John 10, 10 and 11. Listen to what he says. The thief comes only to steal, steal, to kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And listen to the way in which he demonstrates himself as being the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There are a lot of ways that we see expressed in the scripture the beauty of what God has done in offering Christ for us. One is the most famous passages that we probably all memorize is John 3.16. This is the way in which God has demonstrated his love toward us. Notice the way Jesus describes himself as being a shepherd in Matthew chapter 11, 28, and 30. The function of what it means to shepherd your soul, to, to walk in communion with you. Some of us need to get over the deep arrogance that we have in thinking that we don't have problems. Matthew chapter 11 seems to indicate in Jesus' statement that we all have problems. What does he say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You notice that... When we have problems, sometimes the first thing that, that comes up into our mind is not running to Christ. It's running to some other authority. You're allowing those things to be the shepherds of your soul. When notice with Jesus' invitation where he's telling you to come when you are weary and heavy laden, notice he is not dismissing the fact that you will be weary and heavy laden. You want to know the reason Jesus talks a lot about anxiety? Because in a cursed world, as a fallen person, you're going to have lots of opportunity to be anxious. You want to know why Jesus talks about being downcast and feeling in despair? Is because in a fallen world, cursed world, and a fallen person, you are going to have lots of opportunities to feel despair. And those are not contrived things. Those are real things. You, know what, you want to know why Jesus invites you to come to him as the one who would give you rest for your souls? Because you're going to have lots of opportunity in a cursed world as a fallen person to be weary and heavy laden. So the question then is, who is the shepherd of your soul? You see, Jesus or God has built the church to be this specifically for us, that he would be the shepherd of our soul. And we're called to walk in communion. How do we do that? We do that in several ways. Reading the scriptures, being in fellowship with one another, obeying what Christ says, responding in love and gratitude to him because of what he's done in uniting us to God. That he's reconciled us, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, to God. Through Christ, he's done this work. Now, what I want you to see is that as we're in union with Christ and we walk faithfully with him, obeying, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you're in union with Christ, you love him. Why? Because he first loved you. And what is it that you desire? You desire to walk in faithful fellowship with him. The whole process goes like this, and this is where we have to hurry. 
you are united to Christ. And because of that, Ephesians chapter 3 and following says this, that you will be rooted and grounded. This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, that they would be rooted and grounded in love so that they would walk now in a worthy manner, uh, in a worthy manner for which they've been called. Now, as you flesh that out, I could read Ephesians 3, but we don't have time, okay? You don't have to wait till Pastor Rick gets there. He'll flesh this out further, I'm sure, when he gets there. But I want you to read that and just listen to the way in which you hear Paul praying for the church at Ephesus, the way he describes what he wants to see formed in them, that they realize what it means to be united with Christ. And later he's going to describe that as they grow in Christ and walk in communion with him, that what happens is they grow to maturity. This beautiful picture, we'll get to that in a second. Now, here's what we need to get to so that you can see the beauty of the doctrine of being united to Christ, walking in communion with him, and what it fleshes out to in the way in which we care for one another. Notice the, w- the way Jesus in John chapter 13 describes this new commandment that he's given to us. This is what he says. A new commandment, John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And don't you find it interesting, this idea of love? We need to pause here and define what we mean here by love. We are not talking about the superficial expression of love that's so prevalent in the culture in which you and I live. Love in our culture is simply reciprocation. Okay? Love in our culture just simply means that I'll do this for you if I think at some point that you will do this back to me. That's the demonstration of love. That's the way that we think about love. We sort of tango in marital relationship thinking that that's what love actually means. I'll do this for you or I'll speak this way to make you feel ooshy and gushy and I'll buy these things for you so that you will then in return demonstrate love back to me. That's not a demonstration of what God describes as love. Here, what God is describing is a love that's demonstrated through his sacrificial expression of dying on the cross for the glory of God, for the good of his people. A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. What does that mean? That means in everything that you do, whether we're talking about marital relationships, care group relationships, uh, fellowship among the body, people that you're dealing with who are believers even in your workplace, how are you supposed to, to live in interaction with them? Living in the same way as Christ, to love them, to demonstrate sacrificial love for their sake, that you would lay down your life for their good. And what does he say? By by this all, people will know that you are my disciples. Why is he saying this? Because he's saying this because you cannot do this if you are not united to Christ. You see, as we talk about what it means to care for one another, to be vulnerable enough to be cared for, and then also to love someone enough that they're not going to repay you in return for what you give to them, in and of yourself, your energies, your resources, or whatever the, the case may call for, that you loving someone in that way is something that the world cannot accomplish. And you should always be feeling the pressure that you can't accomplish this either unless you are united to Christ, walking in faithful communion with the shepherd, mimicking the care of Christ for his people. 
Now, I want you to notice something. The reason it's a beautiful thing when we, think, when we see Christ as shepherd, God has structured the church in such a way that as he's the shepherd, he has given us under-shepherds, Pastor Rick and Pastor Myrell and Pastor Aaron and all the rest of the guys, that they can lead us and shepherd us to be under-shepherds, if you will. Okay? So much so that Hebrews 13, 17 tells us to obey our leaders and that they are called then to keep vigilant watch over our souls, a constant watching over our souls. That tells me two things. The first thing that it tells me is that we, as the people of God, need to be humble in receiving correction and care from our leaders. Why? Because they are demonstrating Christ to us. The second reason is it's an exhortation to our elders is that they, the Bible says in that very verse, that they will give an account for the way in which they keep watch over their souls. You see, that tells something. tells me something. It tells me that they are responsible. So God has given this type of care of the souls of people to the church because he's given the under-shepherds the responsibility to accomplish that work. But now, before we start thinking, well, that's what we pay Pastor Rick to do, right? We have to see that what Christ is calling us all to. Notice he doesn't give a caveat that say that there's some special guys, the elders, that they're the only ones responsible for loving in this way. No, he says anyone who claims the name of Christ and is united to Christ and is shepherded by Christ, you have the call to love in this very way. But how is it that we love? We don't love because someone else loves us first, right? We love because Christ loved us first. I think often what, what happens is we're willing to give care to those that we think might give it back to us in return. That's reciprocation. The reason that we can care and be poured out consistently is because the source of our love is not of the earth. The source of our love comes from the sacrifice that Christ has given. And this is what happens when you walk in communion with Christ is you begin to grow in depth and love and understanding of what Christ has done for you. Why? You notice how Paul, in his ministry, the beginning of his ministry, he says he's the least of all the apostles. At the end of his life, he proclaims that he is the chief of all what? Sinners. You understand that progression that happens? Is the closer he became to Christ, the more he saw the depth of the iniquity and transgression in himself. And what did that do? That began to grow his love deeply for who Christ was, that Christ would pour himself out for him as a sinner. See, that happens as you walk in communion with God. And something else happens, this transition in your heart and mind, in the way in which you see other people. Now you begin to see people, not through the lens of of an earthly mentality, but through the lens of Christ. Because as you are conformed to him, what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3 is that you grow in compassionate hearts. People often ask me in this whole counseling ministry thing that, that how do you have empathy or sympathy toward a person? My answer is very simple. You grow in Christ, and you will have compassion for the people who are broken in the right ways, and you will respond in a way that's shepherding them the way that Christ shepherds us. When we think about the church, this is what Francis Schaeffer said, the church must be more than merely a preaching point and an activity generator. It must show a sense of community. And I agree with him. The church is certainly not less than a preaching point. It's not less than the activities that we do, but it's certainly more than that. If you think of preaching, what's the purpose of preaching? Preaching is the proclamation of God's word. It makes the church centered upon the glory of God, the beauty of Christ, the centrality of his word, and the dependence of the Holy Spirit. 
The proclamation of the word is a form of care. I don't know if I would go so far as to say this is some sort of corporate counseling session, as some have in the past. But what it does is it is God's corporate means of caring for us as the shepherd shepherds us with his word. Pastor Rick's job is to simply just proclaim the word so that Christ, by his spirit, can shepherd our hearts. For what purpose? So that we grow in Christ. Why? So that our lives bring glory to God and we change the way in which we inwardly love one another. So preaching, that's the purpose. What does it do? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Again, here's the thunder, right? Think of the the big thunderstorm. I used to, I grew up in Florida, so this is a very vivid picture to me, where when it's miles off, you can see the lightning flashing and you can hear the thunder. When it gets closer, it all happens at one time, okay? So I'm the far-off thunder, but it's coming, right? He's the thunder and the lightning. Here it comes, okay? So Ephesians chapter 4. Follow with me. If you understand what's happening in chapters 1, 2, and 3, which if you don't yet, you will in, I don't know, months, years, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) He's giving us the doctrine of what it means to be united to Christ. He's glorifying God for the work that he's done, and now he's saying, okay, because of that, go walk. Okay, let me get to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first three verses. Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. Notice what's being formed in us as we listen to this word, as we hear it preached, as it begins to minister to our soul, as we find ourselves dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enact this word, to be illumined to this word. He says, with all humility and gentleness. You see what's growing in you? What you once were was arrogant, hostile toward God, what's growing in you now because of the word, because of the truth of who God is, because you're constantly reminded by the corporate preaching. This is why you need to sit under the word often. Week after week after week, Hebrews warns us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is the manner of some. Why? Because you need the care of the preached word in fellowship with believers. For what purpose that you grow in humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance? What's the outflow of hearing that word and the work that it's doing in you? Listen to it. Showing tolerance for one another in love. How, how will people out there know that you're his disciples? By the way in which you love one another. How does that happen? As you walk in communion with God, you grow in humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance. Romans 15.1, bearing with the weak, the failings of the weak, you who are strong. Why does he tell us to do that? Because you're going to have lots of opportunities in the church to do that. Listen, here's the fact of the matter. You don't grow up to become a carer for others and become exempt from needing care. Every single person in this room has a deep need to be cared for. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I know me. Because I know what the Word says about people who are born into sin, and you all fit that category. We all have a deep need for care. And here's the beauty of what God has done, is he says, I'll redeem you so that you can be cared for by my Word, but then you can also be a ministry of reconciliation to care for others. You don't fit some category of needing to be cared for or you've grown up to this position of care for people. 
That's a fluid thing that happens among the body, that we need care constantly. But we are also called then as a follower of Christ to mimic his shepherding in the way we care for one another with compassionate hearts. Now go to verse 11. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the work of ministry. What are you called to do? It's not just Pastor Rick's job and Pastor Myrell's job. You're called to do the work of the ministry. And how is that formed in you? Paul is demonstrated by the truth of Christ, chapters 1 through 3. As you grow in humility and compassionate hearts, gentleness and kindness toward other people, you begin to grow in the work of service, the ministry. And what's the ministry? To build up the body of Christ. Notice that's the work of Christ. That's what's proclaimed about Christ. Him being the head, we doing his work. And what's happening? The building up. This doesn't mean growing numerically necessarily. This is growing in depth in the way in which we love one another. This is often the way the Apostle Paul prays for us. Let's finish in a few minutes, with exploring what that ministry actually looks like. That we are equipped to be ministers, 2 Corinthians 5, of reconciliation. In what way? These are the primary means that we now flesh out the work of this doctrine of being united to Christ. That you become a minister of reconciliation. Is evangelism not deep care for the souls of broken people? I mean, think about it like this. How much do you have to hate a person to not share the beauty of the gospel of Jesus with him? Peter describes it as this, that when someone comes to faith and the light is turned on, that they are transformed from darkness to marvelous light, that is soul care. And then, as we ministers of reconciliation are constantly reminding each other the beauty of God's reconciliation to us, what does Romans 5.1 declare? That we are at peace with God. You want to know what it means to be, to, to have true soul care? To be healthy, which we're going to talk about the next time in June 6th, is to walk faithfully with Christ, to be conformed to his image. To what point? That you proclaim that message consistently to others. Now, how does this happen? We go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, 5, 12 through 13, and this is what you'll see. A growth, okay, in, in the way our minds work. No longer thinking about things on the earth, thinking about things above. It transforms now what we value and what we think is most important. I'll give you a quick illustration to help understand this. Had a, an aunt who died at 53 years of age. She died of bile duct cancer several years back. You take her, for example, at 53 who's a wonderful, faithful, quiet servant of the Lord in the church, who served people, benevolent ministry, and all sorts of things. As she served people, she's laying on her deathbed, sick, outwardly. If you think about her versus some 25-year-old just graduated MIT, he's running up the corporate ladder, making six figures, he doesn't know the Lord. Who's more healthy? You see, Colossians 3 says to change the way, the paradigm with which we think in how we see people. Don't think about things according to the earthly systems of wisdom. Think about things from above, he says, and what will happen in you. That you'll grow in personal holiness. You can see this in the passage, Colossians chapter 3. Grow in personal holiness. You'll grow in compassionate hearts towards someone else. You'll grow in genuine kindness. You'll grow in humility towards others to where you can receive instruction and also give it. You'll grow in gentleness and meekness in the way that Paul tells us to in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. That you who are gentle go to someone who is caught in transgression and you do it with gentleness and kindness. 
You grow in patience in bearing with someone else. And then what does this look like? All the one another's. We have to close, but I want you to look at those. I've given you passages to go check out. And what this looks like in a place like Care Group, what this looks like in a place like Mission Road is after service when you hear the word, and I love the fact when everybody stands around and they, they talk, and they're discussing the things of the Lord. This is, this is a part of what this caring means when we get to know one another well enough where we can actually care for one another. Something that's hindering us, even in the American system, where we're so busy that we don't know one another well enough to know when we're hurting. You see, it takes me living with you, being with you. It's just like with my kids. The, the Bible assumes that I'm the primary discipler of my kids. But one of the things that we miss is it's not some like sit-down lecture or series of lectures that we give to our kids, and that's what makes us a discipler. The primary thing that makes us a discipler is that we are with our children. That's the key from the scriptures. You are with them so that you see where their heart goes and how to correct it. You see where their heart goes and you encourage. It's the same thing of what, of what that means to be disciples together with Christ, that we walk with one another faithfully so that we see when you're broken. I see when your face is downcast and things aren't going well, or I, I know you well enough to where you can share that type of story, and I encourage you with the word. That's how we love one another, or when we're in physical need, and we take care of each other. This is the beauty of what all of the one another's are about, and I've only listed a few. Depending upon who's counting, 43 or 59, as many as 59, one another's. And what is this? This is a fleshing out of what it means for you to be in union with Christ. You see, if you're not fleshing these one another's out of loving one another, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, exhorting one another as long as it's called today because of the deceitfulness of sin, encouraging one another, praying for each other, forgiving each other, confessing to each other, being patient with one another, showing hospitality to one another. If we're not doing those things, what are we saying about our union with Christ? We're truncating the expression of what it means to be united to the great shepherd. That the way in which he cared for our souls, we are all, not just pastors, not just elders, we are all called to mimic Christ in the way in which he cares deeply for one another. And that takes us, as you'll hear, pay attention to the scriptures where Paul is praying constantly, grow in love for the building up of the body of Christ so that way you love one another, not in superficial send me Valentine things but deeply in love to where you pour out your life for one another. And I can promise you this. You want meaning and purpose and value in life? This is the way you grow in meaning and purpose because this is what you were made for, to image Christ, to love other people, to care for other people. And this is the mission of the church. What a proclamation to the watching world that we're different because of the way in which we deeply love one another. We'll pick up June 6th. Let me pray.